0: Now, we've been looking at the theme of unlock revelation, which means we've been looking at what book primarily? The book of Revelation, right? And we're looking at, and we're seeing that it's a revelation of who? Jesus Christ, right? And many people in the world today think that the book of Revelation is all about the Antichrist and about the mark of the beast and about the other things like that. Now, does the book of Revelation contain those things? Yes, it does. And actually, this morning, we're going to be looking at what the book of Revelation does say about the Antichrist's power. But we're realizing that the book of Revelation is primarily given to show us about the character of Jesus, not just the character of Satan, right? Doesn't that make sense? God is trying to reveal his truth to us and show us what his last day people look like. Now, why this is important is because tonight or this morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of the Antichrist. And I think it's important to understand that this is not all that the book of Revelation talks about. So those of you who are here for the first time, don't think that this is all we've talked about the whole time. And if you've missed any, feel free to get some of the audio or the materials in the back that cover the different nights of the meetings that we've discussed. But tonight we're going to be looking at one, or this morning, sorry, I can't figure out what time of the day it is when I don't see any sunshine. But this morning, we're going to be looking at the topic of Babylon rising and trying to understand the question of who is the Antichrist. Now, I want to ask you a question. If the book of Revelation is about Jesus Christ, why would the book of Revelation be telling us about Antichrist as well? Now, how many of you here are parents? Anyone here a parent? I, I can't raise my hand yet. We're, we're, we're on the way. Seven children, okay. You're the, the expert of parenting. Well, then there's the butchers. We're the butchers. You have a couple more than seven, right? So you guys can get along well. And you understand something about parenting, right? You want to give good things to your children, right? Jesus even talks about that. If you, being evil, know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven want to give good things to those who ask him? God longs to give us good things. But I want to ask you a question. Have you ever warned your children about something that would be dangerous for them? I know my mom used to say, don't stick, your, don't stick something metal in an electrical outlet. Well, I didn't really understand why that was important until I did it, right? And I realized that there's many times that God is trying to warn us about things because he wants to protect us. And we realize that when God tells us about the Antichrist, it's not because God's trying to be mean or God's trying to be arbitrary, but truly it's because God is trying to give us safety as his people and warn us about what's coming. So before we get into the topic this morning of studying the Antichrist, why don't we ask for the Lord's blessing and bow our heads for prayer together. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for the privilege that we have to study your word. Lord, what a blessing it is to look at the Bible, to understand it more fully. And Father, we realize that we can't understand your word on our own, but we need your spirit to guide us into all truth. That, Lord, we want to know more about the grace and love of Jesus. We want to understand more about His character. And, Father, as we look at this topic of the Antichrist, it's a sober topic. But, Father, we pray that You would give us clarity so that we could understand the warning that You're given. And, Father, we just pray that You would fill our hearts with the desire to follow You above anyone else. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the question we're looking at this morning is, who is the Antichrist? And if you were to get on the internet and search who was the Antichrist, you're likely to find hundreds of different answers, right? I I went on Google last night and Googled Antichrist. I don't really recommend it because there were some images there that are just really appalling and not just in a bad way. Anyways, it's up to you. Use discretion. But what you can realize is that there's a multiplicity of understandings of who the Antichrist really is. Now there was one face I saw repeatedly there, and it was the face of our dear President, Barack Obama, and let me tell you something, I am grateful to be an American. I'm grateful to have a President who's leading our country, and I'm not being political here, but all I'm saying is that I don't think I could be a President very well. It's quite the job, right? And so we can point fingers and we can blast people and we have our different opinions on who's good, but I can tell you one thing is that the Bible does not tell us, or the Bible does not tell us that the Antichrist is Barack Obama, okay? So if you're, if you're coming here for that this morning, you're going to be a little bit disappointed, but we would like to encourage those people who are in office, right, pray for them as they have a difficult role to fill. But the question is, who is it? When does the Antichrist come? What are the specifics that the Bible gives us in helping us to understand the Antichrist power? Now, did you know that the word Antichrist is only used by one writer in the Bible? And that's the writer of John. Now, he uses the word Antichrist in 1 John to describe the power that's going to be coming on the earth. But did you know that there's many other places that describe the power of the Antichrist without using the same language? What we're going to see this morning is 2 Thessalonians describes the Antichrist power very clearly, and we'll see its connection to Revelation chapter 13, which describes the last power or the Antichrist beast, and then we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7, where it describes the Antichrist as the little horn power, but we're going to see clearly that all of those things are connected, even though using different terminology, is telling us about the same system or the same power that is going to be rising on the earth. Now, we're going to be starting our study this morning by looking at one of Paul's books in 2 Thessalonians. And I would invite you to turn your Bible to 2 Thessalonians. I did not include this one on the screen because I want us to see it in our own Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to notice what Paul says that gives us a little bit of a framework to work in of who the Antichrist is. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, we've already been to the book of Thessalonians multiple times, right? 1 Thessalonians talks a lot about the resurrection and the coming of Jesus and the blessed hope that we have as Christians. And we realize that 2 Thessalonians has a lot to do with the last day events that are going on in this world's history. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1, we're going to pick up this concept of what does Paul tell us about who the Antichrist is. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. And if anyone needs a Bible, there's one on the back table. It says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord had come. What is Paul saying? Hey, I don't want you to be confused about one thing. Jesus hasn't come yet, right? So if you get a letter that sounds like it's from us saying that Jesus has come, don't believe it. Now, why could Paul say that? We looked at this last night, or Thursday night, that when Jesus comes, is it going to be a secret? No, every eye will see him, right? Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, behold, he comes with clouds and every eye I shall see him. Now Paul understanding this says, hey, I don't want you to be confused about the coming of our Lord Jesus, that he's not coming secretly, but notice he continues on to talk in verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means. Now in connection with the last day events, is there going to be a lot of deception going on? Matthew chapter 24, verse 4, Jesus says, let no one deceive. Deceive you. Take heed that no one deceives you. In other words, the reason why Jesus is saying don't allow anyone to deceive you in the last days is because there's going to be a lot of what? Deception. Jesus here and Paul here is warning once again that in the last days there's going to be deception and let no one deceive you. And notice what he continues on to say. For that day will not come unless there is a what? A falling away that comes first and the man of who? The man of sin is revealed, and notice the other title that he gives him, the son of perdition. Interesting, we'll we'll look at those in a little bit. And then it talks about who this power is, and we see very clear connections between this and Revelation chapter 13 that we'll look at in a little bit. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is what? Now this is the idea of the Antichrist power. Now let's just clear something up really quick. When you hear the word Antichrist coming to mind, many times we think of this non-religious force that's going to be coming in and forcing people into worship of of, of obscene things or doing all sorts of craziness, but the word Antichrist, what does it mean? Now, when we think anti, we usually mean that that's against, right? That's that's our common understanding. But in the Greek, the word anti can also mean in place of. In other words, this doesn't necessarily mean that it's someone who's against God, even though it's clear that they are. But we're going to notice that they don't appear to be against God. But what they claim to be is in the place of. Now this is what we see coming out here, right? That one who calls himself God, one who's sitting in the temple of God, one who's in all of these things. And notice he continues on talking, and he he warns against many things, but he gives one reason why people in these last days won't be saved. I want to ask you a question. Many of us are terrified when we think of the Antichrist. But what is it that's going to cause us to be saved in the last days? Is it because we're some mighty Christians who can just conquer everything? No. Notice, notice what Paul says. Notice just skipping down in the same section, verse 10. Actually, we'll start at verse 9. It says, The coming of the lawless one, right? The Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. There's going to be great miracles happening. We see that in Revelation chapter 16 as well. But notice it continues on. It says, And with all unrighteous, What? deception among those who perish. We don't want to be those who perish. Why did they perish? Because they did not receive what? The love of the truth that they might be saved. I want to ask you, who is the truth? Jesus is, right? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the Bible tells us that the reason why people are lost in the last days is because they didn't love the truth. They didn't love Jesus, They didn't love the things that he taught. And instead of going with the ways of Jesus, they went with the ways of Antichrist. And that's what we're going to be looking at more tonight. We've looked at this in other nights before. And this morning what we're going to see is that once again, Satan is trying to receive worship from God. And this last conflict is over who is going to receive our worship. Is it going to be God or is it going to be Satan and Antichrist? Now, notice we're going to back up and look at some of these things that we've looked at in this passage already. In verse 3, Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless there's a falling away that comes first. Now, what does it mean to fall away? Can you fall away if you were never there before? In other words, if you were climbing up on the roof and you fell off the roof, can you fall off the roof without being there first? Now, this is an important thing to understand. You might be thinking, what in the world is he talking about? But there's a falling away or a going apart, and the word is actually apostasia, which is where we get the English word for what? Apostasy, right? And there's someone, what is apostasy? Does someone who's never known God and falls away, can they fall away from God if they've never known God? Right, no, 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 you can't, you can't apostasize if you've never come to God. But notice that the Bible talking about the Antichrist power says that this power will be one who has at one time been godlike or godly or been a Christian type organization but they've fallen away, right? There's an apostasy that takes place. Now, this is what the Bible is talking about when it says a falling away but it gives us a clearer understanding when it uses the next term and what was that next term that it uses? It calls the Antichrist the son of what? Perdition. Now, did you know there's only one other passage in Scripture that uses the term son of perdition? Go with me to the book of John, and this is in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Who is this son of perdition, and how does this help us to understand who the Antichrist is? John chapter 17. Notice what Jesus says. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 12, and this is where Jesus is praying to his father his final prayer before he goes to the cross, or the final recorded prayer before he goes to the cross, and Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he's praying for those who God has given to him, and notice what he says in John chapter 17 and verse 12. Praying to the Father, Jesus says this, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me I have kept. And none of them I lost, except the Son of who? Perdition, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Now, who is it that God was specifically with when he was on this world? Now, we know that he was with many people, right? He was with multitudes, thousands, five thousand, when he fed them and all these different things. We realize that he had the 70 disciples. But who did Jesus spend his most time with? The 12 disciples, right? Jesus and the 12 disciples did everything together. And Jesus, praying for his disciples, tells God, he says, you know, I was with them in the world, and I kept them in your name, talking about the twelve, except for one. There was one that was not able to be kept in your name, and he was the one that Jesus calls the son of perdition, and who was that? Who was it? Judas, right? We realize that Judas is called the son of perdition. Now let me ask you a question. Was Judas one of the twelve? Absolutely. Jesus was close to Judas. Judas had the form of being a follower of Christ. Would you agree with that? If you saw Jesus and the twelve disciples walking down the street, would you think that Judas was the one who was going to betray Jesus? No, it was probably the furthest thing from their mind. And even in the upper room, the disciples weren't aware of who was going to betray Jesus. They didn't even see Judas. And Jesus uses this term to describe the Antichrist in the last days. In other words, the Antichrist is not going to be someone from without, but it's going to be someone from within. Just like Judas, betraying Jesus, was one of the twelve disciples, one of the close followers of Jesus, we're going to see that the Antichrist follower is not some far-off cultish religion in the sense of they have this form of being open Satan worshippers or anything like that, but we realize that in appearances, they appear to be very close to Christ. Now, also I want to say something before we dive into this subject anymore. As we're talking about the Antichrist, we're not here to talk about people, right? We're not here to point fingers and make people look bad. But what we want to say is what does the Bible reveal, right? If my job was that I could just tell you whatever I wanted and that Jesus would be happy with me, I would probably make up a different version to this story because it's not the most fun to allow us to see who the Antichrist power is because many of us, have friends or close loved ones that are associated with this idea. Now, d- before you get too nervous, don't, don't allow your mind to go too far. We're going to make it clear. But what we want to see is that God is a faithful God. He's not trying to make people feel bad, but he's trying to warn us of the dangers that are in this world. So now as we've set the parameters, we see that Antichrist is one that's not coming from without, but it's coming from within. In other words, it's going to have the appearance of a follower of Jesus. And this is where we're going to start our study in Daniel chapter 7. Now Daniel chapter 7, we're going to get a a good glimpse of this. Some of you have been asking, "What are we going to study what the Bible says about those different beasts in Revelation and beasts in Daniel? Well this morning is where we're going to take a little glimpse of them and we'll be looking at them a little bit more. I believe it's Thursday night and then next Saturday morning. But we're going to go to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7, understanding what does the Bible say about Antichrist? Daniel chapter 7. Now, we've already studied in the book of Daniel a little bit. For those of you who remember night number 2, we studied Daniel chapter 2. Do you remember that? And in Daniel chapter 2, we saw a very interesting vision that King Nebuchadnezzar had, right? And that vision was of a statue. Now, do you remember this? Is this coming back as you're hearing about it? That statue had a head of what? Gold, chest and arms of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay, right? And we saw this vision, and in that vision we saw that God was saying that each one of those things represented a different kingdom or a world-ruling power that would exist in the world. Now, Jesus said very clearly in Daniel chapter 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. In in other words, Babylon was there, and after Babylon was to come Medo-Persia, which we find very explicitly named in Daniel chapter 8, Then was to come Greece, which is also named in Daniel chapter 8. And then after Greece, what kingdom arose on the earth? Right, Rome, right? We don't have to just be guessing at this. We can just look at world history very clearly. It was Rome. And after Rome, did someone else take over Rome? In other words, did another kingdom come into power? No, Rome just kind of fell apart and it divided into what we know as Western Europe today. Now, we looked at that prophecy, and what we're going to find in Daniel is that Daniel repeats and enlarges on every vision that he gives. In other words, Daniel chapter 2 sets a foundation and a framework for us to work in. Daniel chapter 7 gives us a little more detail about the same information and focusing on different aspects. Daniel chapter 8 and 9 focus on the same time period, but then give us added detail. Daniel chapter 11, the exact same thing. And what we want to look at this morning is what does Daniel chapter 7 say? tell us now we before we even read some of you might have the header at the top of the chapter and mine says the vision of the four beasts Now, some of you might think, well, this is scary. We're getting ready to talk about beasts. The word beast is really just another word for animal, okay? So if that makes you feel a little bit better, we can talk about the four animals of Daniel chapter 7. It just doesn't have the same drive to it, right? So we're going to use the word beast, but we realize it's not a derogatory term saying, you know, calling someone a beast or saying they're beast-like, but it's really just saying God is using animals to represent specific things. Now, do we do this in our world today? If I were to show you a picture of an eagle, what country comes to mind? The United States, right? We use animals to represent different nations today as well, and we're going to notice that this is what the Bible is doing in Daniel chapter 7. Now, before we dive into it, we just want to look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 17, and set a framework, who are these beasts, or what are these beasts? Notice what Daniel chapter 7, verse 17 says. He says, those beasts which are four are for what? Kings which arise out of the earth. Now this helps us as we're getting ready to study these four beasts. We realize that these are four kings. Now can you be a king and not have a kingdom? Well, I've never met a king that doesn't have a kingdom, right? You realize that you have to have a kingdom in order to be a king. You have to have dominion somewhere in order to have kingly power. And we're going to see that these four beasts represent four kings, or four kingdoms, that once again bear sway over all the earth. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, how many kingdoms were there? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, right? There was four, and then one divided. Now, in this, we see that there's four again, and we're going to realize that what we're finding here is the same as what we found there. That is, the book of Daniel chapter 2 talked about the four kingdoms. That we're going to realize that Daniel chapter 7 lays out the same kingdoms with different information or different descriptions given. Now, if you don't trust me, we're going to go through and we're going to walk through this and see if that's really what the Bible's saying. But we're going to realize that the lion represents Babylon. Persia is going to be the bear, that the leper is Greece, that the dragon or nondescript beast is Rome, and then there's going to be ten horns that come out of that kingdom, just like the ten toes of the statues, and that's divided Europe. Now also, as we look at Daniel chapter 7, I want you to read the first, Daniel chapter 7 and verse 2 with me really quick. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 2. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the what? The great sea. Now, a sea is something with a lot of water in it, right? There's this strife going on, or this this stirring up of the great sea. Now, why would Daniel include that in his vision? Is that something important for us to understand? Well, notice, we're just setting the framework for our study together. We realize that these four beasts are four kingdoms, but where is it that these kings arise out of? And the Bible tells us that they arise out of the sea, right? Isn't that what Daniel is saying? Now, in Bible prophecy, we realize that a sea has a very specific description or or understanding of what it is. Notice what Revelation chapter 17, verse 15 says. He says, the waters which you saw, where the harlot sits. Now, we'll look at Revelation 17 at another time. But he says those waters are what? People, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Now, what we understand in Bible prophecy is that the waters represent populated areas. In other words, these kingdoms don't come out of places that are desolate, but they come out of populated areas. Now, we're going to see that as we continue going through this study that what the Bible is saying is very true. Now, notice Daniel continues on in verse 3, and he says, "...the four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from each other." And notice he zeroes in on verse 4. He says, the first beast was like a what? Was like a lion. And what does it say? And it had eagle's wings. Now, how many of you have seen a lion like that in the zoo before? A lion with eagle's wings. Not normal, right? And he continues on. He says, I watched till wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth. And it was made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was what? Given to it. Now, the Bible gives the description of this first nation that would be like a lion that had eagle's wings. Now, we can all just guess away at who we think these nations are, but we want to allow the Bible to interpret itself, right? If I guess, what good is that if it's not true? Notice what Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7 says. It says, The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of nations is on his way, and his chariot like whirlwind. His horses are swifter than what? Eagles. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 4 here, we realize that he's talking about a nation that's coming, and it's likened to a lion that has eagle's wings. Now, what nation was coming to Israel to conquer it? What nation was the destroyer that was on its way? Well, it was Babylon, right? We know very clearly in Daniel, as you read through it, Daniel chapter 5, that Babylon took actually, Daniel chapter one, forgive me. Babylon took over the kingdom of Israel. And we see that the line with eagle's wings is a very fitting biblical example, but also it's very fitting for modern history. My wife and I had the opportunity of going to the London Museum is that British Museum Sorry, I forget what it even is in London. And what they had there was a replica of the gate. It's called the Ishtar Gate in Babylon. And if you were to walk into Babylon, on the Ishtar Gate, you would see this lion. And notice, what does the lion have? It has wings, right? And we would call those eagle's wings. Now, this is very interesting that the Bible isn't just using symbology that isn't familiar. But when the Bible says that it would be a lion with eagle's wings, do you think Daniel thought, well, obviously, I'm walking past that every day to work, right? It's something common that the people knew. So we see that this first beast, the lion with eagle's wings, clearly represents the kingdom of Babylon. Now this is just review for those of us who are here for the study of Daniel chapter 2, but notice what it continues on. It says that there's another beast that rises in verse 5, and notice what it says. And suddenly another beast, the second like a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said thus to it, Arise and devour much one much flesh. Now what's interesting about this lion is this is probably the most normal animal to what we see and what we would see in a zoo today but it tells us something interesting that the lo- or the bear, sorry, the bear is raised up on what? One side, right? In other words, it has a dominant side, one is higher than the other. There's one side that has more prominence than the other side. And it has three ribs in its mouth. Now, we're going to see that according to Daniel chapter 2, Medo-Persia was the nation that came next. According to Daniel chapter 8, it names it by name. It says it's Medo-Persia. And according to modern history, we understand that Medo-Persia overcame the Babylonian kingdom. Now, why is it that God would describe the Medo-Persian empire as a bear that was raised up on one side, or there was one side that was more prominent than the other? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard of the kingdom of Media? I'm not talking about Hollywood, right, but the kingdom of Media, which joined to the kingdom of Persia. You see, the Medo-Persian Empire was this joint rulership between the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Now, typically, we just hear about the Persians, right? They're the most dominant or the most prominent empire, and we see that in uh, uh, in this cooperation that the bear has going on as the two kingdoms have come together, one is more prominent than the other, and that would be the Persian Empire. Now, also, it says it has three ribs in its mouth, and it's interesting to note that when Medo Persia came to power, it had to conquer three nations. It had to conquer Lydia, Babylon, and Egypt, which would be those three ribs that are in its mouth that were just conquered by this nation. You see, the Bible isn't just guessing at the symbology, but it's very clear that it has significance for our understanding of it today. Now, what happens next? Is that it? Is there only two beasts? No, it continues on. And Daniel chapter 7, verse 6, notice what it says. And after this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, I want to ask you, what kingdom conquered the Medo-Persian Empire? Greece, right? Now, who was the leader of the Grecian Empire? Who was the most prominent? we call him Alexander the what? The Great, right? He was a very prominent man, and we realized that by the age of 33, he had conquered the then known world. The only thing he couldn't conquer was his own intemperance, and he died of alcohol poisoning. And so we see that Alexander the Great is fleeting through, and this is the idea that you get when you read Daniel chapter 7. Is a leopard a slow animal? How many of you would like to be either chased by a leopard or a turtle? Which one would you pick? Right? A leopard is not a slow animal. Now, if you add four wings on a leopard, did it get slower or faster? You have this idea of it's a rapid-moving empire, and this is exactly what we see with Alexander the Great with the kingdom of Greece as depicted as this leopard with eagle's wings or wings like a bird. Now, what's interesting to know is that when Alexander the Great finished his rule, did you know that he actually didn't just hand it over to one of his sons? He didn't trust anyone really enough to rule the empire of Greece, and so he didn't just give the empire to one person, but he gave it to how many people would you guess that he gave it to from the, the, the picture here? Four, right? There's four heads. Now, there's sometimes that there's too many heads and not anything gets done, right? You realize that the head of the organization is the leader, and there's four heads here, and this is exactly what happens when Alexander gives over his empire. He gives it to four people. He gives it to Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Now, say that four times fast, and you'll realize that this is who Alexander had given it to. That this is what the Bible is saying, that when there's a leopard with eagle's wings, or with wings like a bird, with four heads, it represents the division of the Greek empire into the four divisions of his generals. Now this is very accurate, right? What we're seeing in the Bible matches up with modern history, matches with Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 8, and Daniel chapter 9. Now notice what happens next. This is where the prophecy starts to zoom in on something different. Verse 7 continues, and it says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. And then it continues on, and it says it had huge iron teeth, and it was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all of the beasts that were before it, and it had how many horns? Ten horns. Now, we realize that after the Greek Empire, that there's another empire that came to power, right? How many of you have studied world history, and you realize that after Greece comes which nation? Rome. Now, is that what we found in the statue of Daniel chapter 2, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And then notice what's interesting about the description of this beast. It says that it's different from the others. And does this beast sound like a nice beast or kind of a cruel beast? Right? Yeah, scary, right? A nondescript, kind of dreadful, scary beast. Now, notice the description that the Bible gives of it very clearly that we just read. It says that it was exceedingly strong, it was dreadful, it was terrible, it has huge iron teeth, it was devouring, it was breaking in pieces and trampling the residue with its feet. Does this sound like someone you would like to meet? No. Now, do we see that the Roman Empire matched up with this description? Now we realize very clearly that Rome was not the nicest to its enemies, right? We realize that they actually longed to to dominate and to lead by fear. And some people have said that when Rome would capture a city, that they would actually crucify all of the inhabitants up the road leading to the city, just letting people know that we're dominating you. Now it's also the same Rome that when Jesus was born, that they ordered the decree that all children under the, age of the, un, under the age of two, what would happen to them? That they were to be killed. Does that sound like a very nice empire? If, if the United States started decreeing that, would you be very happy with them? No, I mean, this is a crazy thing that's happening. They're a very vicious kingdom. We realize that it's the same kingdom that crucified Jesus, the Messiah. Now, if you can, can, if you can kill God, you realize that you're pretty wicked, wouldn't you say? Now, what's interesting to note is that the Bible says that this kingdom, and we understand that this kingdom to be Rome, that it's not like the other kingdoms, it's a little bit different, and how is it different? Well, no other kingdom has had horns so far, right? It doesn't, it doesn't say that, but notice that it says this one has horns, and how many horns does it have? Well, it says that it has ten. Ten. Now, what's interesting to note, look over in verse 24 really quick. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 24. What do these ten horns represent? Daniel chapter 7 and verse 24. And it says the ten horns are ten what? Kings. Now, this is interesting, right? A king or a kingdom. So there's ten kings or kingdoms that rise out of this beast. In other words, this beast doesn't say that it's conquered and another beast comes on the scene, but instead of being conquered, the beast just has ten other kingdoms that comes out of it. Does that sound familiar to what we studied in Daniel chapter 2? We realize that in Daniel chapter 2, the statue had how many toes? Well, I hope ten toes, right? That's That's what we're praying for, that when our baby comes out, it'll have ten toes, right? It has ten toes, and the beast had ten horns. Now we saw that those kingdoms, or the the ten toes, represented the ten kingdoms of divided Europe. And we'll look at a map of that in just a second. And so as we're looking through Daniel chapter 7, we see very clearly that the the context of Daniel 7 is in line with Daniel chapter 2. Would you agree? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then divided Europe. Now those ten tribes that were divided are the ones pictured here that you can commonly see, and this is where we commonly think of Western Europe today, and we see that this is where the ten kings of divided Rome came up and came to power. Now some of you might be thinking, you know, did, are we the first ones to discover this? Does anyone else know about this? Well, notice this picture here with me. I want you to look at it really quick. This is the town hall in Nuremberg, Germany. This was built in 1616. And notice what you see here. Over here in this corner, this is a Babylonian. And what do you see behind him? Can you see that? I know it's a small picture. But for those of you who can't see it, there's a lion and he has eagle's wings. Okay, well, that's interesting. Maybe they just like lions with eagle's wings. Well, notice on the right side that you have the picture of a Persian warrior. And with the Persian warrior, what kind of animal is that? Can you see it? It's a bear. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Maybe just coincidence, right? Well, notice, as you go and look at the other entrance of their building, that you look on the left side, and you see this, how many heads does this little creature have? Well, it has four heads, sitting, and you may not be able to see the fourth one, it's kind of dark back there, but there's four heads, and there's this Roman warrior, or Greek warrior, warrior there, Well, this is interesting. Now, then you go over to the right side and you see this beast and you can get a closer up picture of what the beast looked like. If you thought you had a bad hair day this morning, you did not right? You don't look like this guy. So you realize that this is the other beast. Now, how many horns does this beast have? Well, if you counted it, he has 10 horns. It's kind of a nondescript beast, right? You can't say that looks like something in the zoo. And right next to him is a Roman warrior there. Now, in 1616, they clearly understood that what Daniel chapter 7 was talking about was giving the understanding of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, right? We're not the first ones to discover this. And even the study of the Antichrist, we're not going to be the first ones to discover that. But what we want to look at is not just the same, okay, well, these are the empires that come, but there's something that takes place that's different about Daniel chapter 7 than what happened in Daniel chapter 2. Notice this verse on the screen. It says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn, right? You see that, right? So Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8 tells us that he was considering this beast, and as he's looking at the beast, he sees the the ten horns there, but then something happens. Notice we're going to read through the full passage here of this little horn. It says, I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, and what happened? He was coming up where? Among them. Now what does it mean to come up among them? He he was there close to them, right? Now we're going to realize that not only does he come up among them, but as he comes up, he uproots three of them. We'll look at that in a second. But this little horn is the little horn that people have clearly said that this is the Antichrist power of revelation. That this is what the Bible is talking about as the one who is going to be working on behalf of the enemies of God. Now, it says that he comes up among the ten horns. Now, I want to ask you a question. What does this give us as to an understanding of the little horn? Does it give us an understanding of who the Antichrist power is? Well, if he's coming up among the ten horns, and the ten horns are part of the ten tribes of Western Europe, where would we expect for the little horn or the Antichrist power to come up in? The same place, right? he can't come up among them and then come up in South America. Does that make sense? He has to come up among them. That's what the Bible tells us. So the first identifying point for the little horn is we realize that this horn arises out of Western Europe or the divided Roman Empire. Now you might be saying, well, what significance with that? You're going to realize that these add up to give us an understanding. Now I want to ask you another question. When did Rome divide and fall? Right? You can look at your history book. Some of you might have studied that before. When does Rome fall and then come into a divided kingdom? Well, we realize that that division happened in AD 476, with Western Rome falling, and you realize that at that point, people just kind of rejected the ultimate authority of one ruler, and they started turning off and just had all these other pop-up nations happening in that time. So we realize that if it arises among those ten, and it arises in divided Europe, and Europe does not become divided until 476 A.D., then that means that the little horn has to rise to power at least after 476 A.D. Would you agree with that? I mean, this is just simple understanding of what's taking place. He can't rise up among them if they're not there. And so they got there at 476, so it has to be sometime after 476 A.D., now we're going to see something else here, and this is what we talked about a little bit earlier, is that this kingdom not only arises among the ten, but he actually uproots three. Notice what Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8 tells us. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8, and we've read this a couple times, but we'll read it in its fullness this time. I was considering the horn, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of his first horns were plucked out by the roots. Now this is interesting. In order for this little horn to come, he has to uproot three other horns. What do the horns represent? Kings, or kingdoms, right? That's what the Bible said. So if he's coming to power, and in order to come to power he has to uproot three others, that gives us some more understanding about who this little horn power is. Now we realize that those three kingdoms that he uprooted were the kingdoms of the Heruli, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals, that were uprooted by this little horn power shortly after its prominence, or actually coming to prominence. So we have this so far, that it comes out of divided Europe, that it arises after 476, and that it uproots three kingdoms. But does the Bible give us any other understanding about who this little horn power is? Does it give us any more characteristics? Because we could really guess away at a lot of stuff if that's all that we're given, right? But notice that the Bible is very clear. Now we're getting ready to go to Revelation, but before we do that, notice we're going to be looking at something very specific about this horn. Daniel chapter 8, or Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8, notice what it says at the end of that. After it says they were plucked up by the roots, it says, And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking what? Pompous or great words, right? Now notice verse 11. Daniel chapter 7, verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words. Okay, now notice verse 20. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 20. Notice what he says. He says, And the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn came up before which three fell, namely that horn which has eyes and a mouth which spoke, what kind of words? Pompous words. Now, are you thinking we're trying to get a theme here? Notice what verse 25 says. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Now, the question is, what are these pompous words? What does it mean to speak pompous words? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, we see that Revelation gives us a very similar picture of this power arising And it gives us a little more understanding on what these pompous words are that helps us to understand and identify this beast. Revelation chapter 13, and we're doing this as quick as possible, but if you have any questions, please make sure to ask them. Revelation chapter 13, notice what it says, John talking about. He says, and I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the where. Now, where did we see the beast arising out of in Daniel chapter 7? out of the sea, right? Okay, same thing. And this beast has seven heads and ten horns. I want to ask you a question. If you were to count the heads of all of the beasts listed in Daniel chapter 7, how many heads are there? There's the lion, there's the bear, there's the four heads of Greece, right? And then there's the nondescript beast. That comes up with seven heads. Now, how many horns were on all of those animals together? ten, right? There was just the ten. Now this is very interesting that it gives us the same description. Having seven heads and ten horns and on his horns ten crowns. Now in other words, they're kings, right? Only kings wear crowns or people at Burger King. But we notice it continues on and on his head was a what kind of name? A blasphemous name. Now notice verse two. This is going to help us see even more the connection to Daniel chapter seven. Now the beast which I saw was like a what? A leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. Now are those the three animals that we saw listed in Daniel chapter 7? Absolutely. So is he talking about the same thing? Undoubtedly. And notice it continues on. It says, the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it had been wounded, mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed and all the world will wonder after the beast. Now we're going to continue talking about this, that this is the beast that all of the world is wondering after in the last days, and we know that we're not specifically in that time yet, and we're going to see that when we get to the s- subject of the mark of the beast and the United States in Bible prophecy. When does this fully take place? But notice what it says in verse 4. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with him? Now notice verse 5. And he was, giving, um, he was given a mouth speaking what type of things? Great things and, what's that second word? And blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue 42 months. Now this is interesting. Daniel chapter 7, they say this person or this power is constantly speaking pompous words, pompous words, pompous words. And then in Revelation chapter 13, we see that he's speaking great things and blasphemy. Now I want to ask you a question This is a power that obviously blasphemes God, but what does it mean to blaspheme God? Sinful, Sinful, okay. Now, we we could all go around it. I would agree that this is the man of sin, right? We see that very clearly, and that it's a sin against God, but what specifically does the Bible tell us? Notice that the Bible gives us some clear indication On what blasphemy is. Now, here's the dictionary definition that blasphemy is the act of claiming for oneself the attributes and the rights of God, right? That would be blasphemous. But how does the Bible describe blasphemy? What does it say that helps us to understand blasphemy? Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and notice this encounter that Jesus has. Mark chapter 2, Jesus is accused of blasphemy. And the question is, why did they accuse him? What was he doing that was blasphemous? Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Now this is the story, and if we had time we would read through the whole thing, but this is the story where the paralytic man is lowered through the roof by his friends. Do you remember that story? And as he's lowered through the roof, Jesus comes and he has an encounter with him, and Jesus says, your sins be forgiven you. Now notice what happens, Mark chapter 2 and verse 7. Verse 6 says, And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak what? Blasphemy like this. Well, what are they talking about? Who can forgive sins but who? But God alone. Mark chapter 2, verse 7 tells us that this power would be blaspheming against God, and Mark chapter 2 tells us that what is blasphemy is someone who, being a man, claims to forgive sins. Can I forgive your sins? Can you forgive my sins? No, we see that there's only one who can forgive our sins, and that's Jesus Christ, right? And this is someone who blasphemes. They claim the power to forgive sins. Now, that's not only the, def- the only definition we get. John chapter 10. Turn to John chapter 10 and verse 33. And Jesus, once again, has another encounter with these lovely people. John chapter 10 and verse 33. And Jesus says they're getting ready to stone Jesus. And Jesus just asks the question, what are you stoning me for? But notice, notice this interaction. John chapter 10 and verse 33. John 10 verse 33. Jesus says, The Jews answered him saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for what? Blasphemy. And because being a man, you make yourself what? God. So blasphemy has two parts according to Scripture. It's someone who claims to forgive sins, even though they're a man, and it's someone who claims, even though they're a man, to be in the place of God. Now, was Jesus blaspheming when he claimed to forgive sins? Absolutely not, because Jesus was God. Was Jesus blaspheming when he claimed to be God? No, because that's who he truly was. But if you or I were to claim to forgive sins, would I be blasphemy? Absolutely. If I claimed to be in the place of God, would I be committing blasphemy? Absolutely. Now, this helps us to understand this last power that claims to be able to forgive sins, and claims to be God. Now, notice we're going to get another identifying point of this beast in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 7. If you were still there, Revelation chapter 13, verse 7, and we'll read it off of the screen together. And it says, it was granted to him to do what? To make war with the saints and to do what? To overcome them. So what we see here is that this power, who are they fighting against? Who are they persecuting? Well, it says the saints, right? And we realize that the saints aren't anyone other than us today, right? Revelation chapter 14, verse 12 says, Here are the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Those who have faith in Jesus and are obedient to him by faith, we realize that those are the saints who Satan is trying to persecute through the Antichrist power. Now, Daniel chapter 7 tells us the very same thing, that this power would be a persecuting power, not just persecuting the secular world, but persecuting God's people. Notice what Daniel chapter 7 and verse 21 says. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 21, we just want to get a clear understanding of what the Bible is saying about this power. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 21 it says, I was watching, in the same horn, talking about the little horn, was making war against who? The saints, and prevailing against them. Now, skip down a little bit to verse 25. It says, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, and he shall do what? Persecute the saints of the Most High. Do we understand that this little horn, or the Antichrist power, is going to be a persecuting power? It's not something I made up, but it's clear in Revelation chapter 13 and Daniel chapter 7 verses 21 and 25 that this is a power that is going to persecute God's people. Now the next identity, or the next identifying point of the Antichrist that we get is for those who love math. Is there anyone here who loves math? All right, I see... Two. Wow, okay, slim pickings. Well, this is for you guys. I'm glad we we threw it in there. But this helps us to identify who the Antichrist is. Someone was telling me, I think it was Conrad the other night, if you can conquer math, you can conquer the world, right? It's, It's one of those things that we have to do. But notice what the Bible says that gives us mathematic proof of the identity of the beast. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, we're going to be in Daniel for a little bit, between Daniel and Revelation chapter 12 and 13, so at least put a marker in Daniel chapter 7 because we'll be coming back several times. Daniel chapter 7, we're going to see something referenced frequently here that I think we need to pay attention to. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25, notice what it says. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 25. It says that he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. We just looked at this. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. He shall intend to change times and laws. We're going to look at this very clearly. But then the saints shall be given into his hand for how long? For time, times, and what does that say? Half a time. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone told you, hey, what time should I come to your house? They're like, well, what about a time, time, and half a time? We wouldn't really get what they're saying, right? This is a symbolic way of measuring time, and we're going to see that the Bible helps us to understand what this time period is. Now, the understanding of a time is that it represents one year. Now, we're going to check this throughout Scripture, so we're going to see if we we have a correct understanding, but that the understanding would be that one time equals one year. So that times, plural, would equal two years, so that equals three in total, right? Time, times, and then the half of times. What's half of a year? 180 some days, right? Now we have to realize that the years and the understanding of God's people in the time of Daniel was a time period that lasted for 360 days. They didn't have 365 days in their calendar, they had 360. So when you come to time, times, and half a times, you have three and a half years, prophetic years, and this is going to give us a clear understanding. Now notice, just keep your finger in Daniel and flip over to Revelation chapter 12. This isn't the only time we see this mentioned, but Revelation chapter 12, we see it once again. Revelation chapter 12, we see this one more time. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14, notice what it says it says, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished, for a what? Time, times, and half a time, from the presence of the serpent. In other words, there's this persecuting power, and it's in power for time, times, and half a time. Now, does the Bible give us any clarity on understanding how long that period is? Just flip the page. You might not even have to do that in your Bible, but go to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 6. Notice what it says. It says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Does this sound like what we just read? It says, Where her place was prepared by God, that she should be fed there for how long? One thousand, two hundred and sixty days. Now this is very interesting. We can see in the Bible, multiple times, there's actually seven different places that we could look at where the Bible refers to time, times, and half a time or to 1260 days, or to 42 months. And what we realize is that when we work out the math, understanding that each year has 360 days, that each month only has 30 days in it, that all of those time periods come out to be speaking of the exact same length of time, and that's 1260 days. Now we've put this on the the board for some of us who hate mental math, that would be myself. Now we're understanding what is this period. Well, if a time equals a year, and two times would be two years, and then half a time is half a year, so that means that it would equal three and a half years, or 1,260 days. Is anyone getting their uh, calculators out to check this? Make sure that we're not just making this up. It's clear from Scripture, and it's clear from the Bible. We want it to be clear to us. Now, is the Bible just talking about a three and a half year period? In other words, is this power just going to be in, in place for three and a half years? Is that what the Bible is saying? Well, no, we realize that it's prophetic language, and we've already dealt with this once, that when the Bible uses prophetic language, that it tells us that in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. Now, this is in Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, where Ezek- God says to Ezekiel, I've given you each day for a year in the symbolic sense, right? When it's literal in Scripture, we don't need to make it symbolic, right? Is creation symbolic? No, it's very literal. God created in six literal days. Now, is revelation symbolic? Yeah, absolutely. Is Daniel symbolic? Yeah, so it's using symbolic language, and so we allow the the, the rule of, of prophecy, interpreting prophecy, to help us to understand that a day in prophetic time equals a year in literal time. Now, some of you might have questions about this, but we're going to see very clearly, just like we saw on night number eight, I believe, that the 1,200 or 2,300 days was directly fulfilled from the Bible. We're going to also see tonight that this 1,260-year period is also directly fulfilled in Scripture. Now, let's just recap what we've learned so far about this Antichrist power. It arises out of divided Europe. It rises to power after 476 AD. It uproots three kings, right? The Vandals, Herli, and Ostrogoths. It blasphemes against God. It claims to be able to forgive sins, and it claims to be in the place of God. It persecutes God's people. How long does it persecute God's people, or how long is it in power? Well, it reigns for twelve hundred and sixty years. Now, there's two other things that we want to look at very quickly that help us to understand a little bit more about this power. You know, Daniel chapter 7 tells us that this little horn was different from the rest. It was different from the rest. I want to ask you, how is it that the Antichrist power is different from the kingdoms that were before it? Well, notice with me Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, this is where we're going to be looking at to get our final two characteristics, and there's many more characteristics we can look at. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4. And notice if you catch what it's saying. Talking about the Antichrist power, it says, So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the who? beast." The little horn, or the beast of Revelation 13, or the Antichrist power, receives worship. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you receive worship? Do you worship the President of the United States, right? No, no, that's not something you do for a political leader, right? But that's something you do for a religious system, right? Do you, you worship a church, right? That's what we do. We worship in a religious setting, not in political setting. And we realize that this person who's the Antichrist power is not just... A political ruler, but it's actually a religious ruler. Now notice what it continues on to say. It's, it doesn't tell us that he's only a religious li- uh, ruler, but continued to read verse 4. It says, and they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to do what? Make war with him. When's the last time your church went to war? Can you tell me? Anyone here, their, their church in Ithaca has gone to war recently? Right, is that something that your church commonly does? Are you you continually going out to war to fight off Satan and his... No, you don't do that, right? Who goes to war? Is it a church or is it a political power? We see that political powers go to war continually. And what's interesting about this understanding is that we see that the little horn is a universal religious power. In other words, all the world marvels after the beast is what Revelation chapter 13 verse 4 tells us. And also we realize that they're a strong political power. Now, when you look at these, it arises out of divided Europe, it comes to power after 476, it uproots three kingdoms, it blasphemes against God, claiming to forgive sins, claiming to be in the place of God, persecutes God's people, reigns for 1260 years, it's a universal religious power, and it's a strong political power. I want to ask you a question, who is the Antichrist? The little horn. horn. So who is the little horn? who is the Antichrist power? In other words, is the Bible just telling us that in the last days there's going to be this horn rising up, and this horn's going to do crazy things? Is the the Christian world going to be deceived by a little horn that kind of walks around? No, no, no. There, there, There has to be this power, right? It's symbolic language, and the question is, who does this little horn represent? Now, before we give the revealing of who this is, I want you to understand very clearly that we're not talking about the people who are involved in this system, okay? We're talking about a system that leads away from God, not people. There are many sincere people that I know very close to me who are involved in this, and so we're not trying to bash people, but we're trying to say, who does the Bible say that this power is? Well, if you were to ask people during the 1500s, 1600s, and it's not even a secret today, who the Antichrist power is, you would get a very clear answer. Now, I want to ask you a question. How many of you here have ever heard the term Protestant Christians? Has anyone ever heard the term Protestant Christians? If you're a Baptist, you're a Protestant Christian. You know, if you're Seventh-day Adventist, you're a Protestant Christian. If you're a Lutheran, you're a Protestant Christian, right? There's the idea of Protestant Christianity. Now, why is the term, why, what does the term Protestant mean? You protest. What are you protesting? I mean, you're just protesting when the line's too long at Walmart. Are you? Pro- I mean, is it just a bunch of unhappy people? No, no, no. You're protesting the power that is the Antichrist. Now, this is very clear. What's interesting during the Protestant Reformation? You're you're familiar with that, right? Where we have Martin Luther and you have Calvin and Huss and Wycliffe and Jerome and all of these people coming up who are the founders of many of the Christian churches today that what they were a part of was they were a part of the Roman Catholic Church. You're aware of that, right? Martin Luther was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. And after studying the Bible, he came to the conclusion that what he believed was that the Antichrist power of Daniel chapter 7 of Revelation chapter 13, and of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that this power represented none other than the very church that he was in, and that was the Roman Catholic Church. Now, some of you might say, I've never heard this before, can you show me a little bit about this? Well, notice what John Calvin says about this, right? Notice his words. Daniel and Paul had predicted that Antichrist would sit in the temple of God. The head that cursed uh, uh, the head of that cursed and abominable kingdom is the Western Church we affirm to be the who? The Pope. Now, this is what John Calvin's understanding is, okay? Now, what about John Wycliffe? We had the opportunity of visiting Wycliffe's church there in outside of London, and notice what he says. The Pope is the Antichrist here on earth. Now, how many of you think that this would be a very popular thing to start me preaching right around where the, the Vatican City is? Not a very popular teaching. Now, notice what Martin Luther says, right? The founder of the Lutheran Church. This is what he says. Oh, how much pain it has caused me, though I had the Scriptures on my side, that I should dare to make a stand alone against the Pope and hold him forth as what? Antichrist. You see, Martin Luther wasn't just trying to pick something with the church. He loved his church. But he realized that the beliefs of this church were leading people away from God, not to God and that this was a system that was there to confuse the worship of God. Notice this this quote here. It says, Wycliffe Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, Cranmer, and the 17th century Bunyan, the translators of the King James Bible, and men who published the Westminster and Baptist Confessions of Faith, Sir Isaac Newton, Wesley Whitfield, John Edwards, and more recently Spurgeon, Bishop J.C. Ryle, and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, these men, among countless others, all saw the office as the papacy as who? The Antichrist. So we're not alone here this this morning saying, well, it's very clear to us that in in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13 that the Antichrist power is really the Roman Catholic Church. Now this is not a very popular topic, and I'm not saying it because I don't like the people. My very best friend in high school was a Roman Catholic. Very sincere people. The people do a lot of great things. And do you think all of the people are the Antichrist. No, no, no. It doesn't say the people are. It says that the system is. In other words, there's many sincere people that are trying to follow Jesus, and they love Jesus, and they're involved in this, but the Bible is saying that we need to beware, because this is the system that the Bible calls the Antichrist. Now, what we want to see is, do the characteristics that we've identified for the Antichrist really match up to the papacy? Because we don't want to point fingers in vain. It says, did the papacy proceed from Rome? In other words, we saw that the papacy was going to come up from among them, right? Out of the divided kingdom. Notice this quote. It says, to the succession of the Caesars came the succession of the pontiffs in Rome. Who is this talking about? It's talking about the Roman pontiffs. It's talking about the Roman Catholic Church, the, 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 the Pope that took the place during the power vacuum in the Roman Empire. They were looking for a leader that would come, and when the Caesar stopped working, we realized that the Roman Church took its place. Notice this quote. When Constantine left Rome, he gave his seat to the who? To the Pontiff. In Stanley's History, page 40, it says, The Pope filled the place of the vacant empires of Rome, inheriting their power, prestige, and titles from paganism. The papacy is but the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon its grave. It's very clear from history that the papacy is what has stepped in and filled the power vacuum when Rome fell and divided Europe. Go back to your history books and check it out for yourself. So then the question is, was the papacy established after 476 A.D. in Europe, right? That's when the divided kingdoms took, came into power, or that's when they started dividing, was 476. So if the papacy is truly the Antichrist, they would have to come to power after that. Notice what the quote says. This is in the title under four, or or, or notice what the the top says, under the year 538. Now there's some big words in here that I don't really like using, and I can't really pronounce them that well, so we're just going to look at it together and uh, just try to get the understanding. That it was recognized, and you can read it together, that we were recognized that the Roman Catholic Church came to power as lawful pope in 538. Now, we, you can read all the, the special English there and uh, work through that, but notice there's one that's a little bit clearer. The history of the Christian church. It says, Justinian entrenched himself with the property of all heretics, that is non-Catholics, and gave all their churches to the Catholics. He published his edict, and what, what's the year there? 538, compelling all to join the Catholic Church in the 90 days, or to leave the empire and and, and confiscated all their goods. We see that in history, the Roman Catholic Church came to power in 538 AD. 538 AD is what history tells us. Now, I want to ask you a question. Has the Roman Catholic Church committed blasphemy? What is blasphemy? Claiming to forgive sins, claiming to be in the, in the, be in the place of God. Now, I'm not going to give you my own opinion. I'm going to give you quotes from their own sources that they tell you very clearly what they believe. We're not pointing anything out that they're ashamed of. It's what they clearly write in their documents. Notice what it says: Dignity and Duties of the Priest, Volume 12, page 2. God himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of his priest and either not to pardon or to pardon, according as they refuse to give absolution the sentence of the priest proceeds, and God subscribes to it. Now, how many of you think that's a little bit interesting? In other words, the priest on earth tells God, hey, this is what's going to happen, and God just bows and said, okay, whatever you say. Who's the one in authority, God or the priest? According to them, it's the priest. Notice this one, reconciliation and penance. The sacrament of confession is indeed being undermined, this is a Catholic speaking, on the, on the one hand, by the obscuring of the, moral, the mortal and religious conscience, the lessening of the sense of sin, and on the other hand, it is being undermined by, some ta- by the sometimes widespread idea that one can obtain forgiveness directly from who? They're saying, can you believe this? The sacrament's being undermined because people think that they can go straight to God and get forgiveness. Even in a habitual way, without approaching the sacrament of Reconciliation. In other words, in order to get forgiveness of sins, I can't go straight to God. The Bible tells me that there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Jesus Christ. That we go directly to Jesus. Jesus says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Jesus is the one who forgives my sins, not a priest. Is it true that they're claiming that you need a priest to get forgiveness? The Bible says that that is the one who would blaspheme, and that would be the one who would be antichrist. Notice this quote. This is from the encyclical letters of Leo the 13th, and he says, We hold upon the earth the place of who? God Almighty. Does it sound a little blasphemous to you? The Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but he is Jesus Christ himself, hidden under the veil of flesh. Does the Pope speak? It is Jesus Christ who speaks. In other words, the Pope isn't just a man, he's God. He's Jesus. That's what, he's, that's what they say. I'm not telling you who he is. I agree with you. He's not. But we see very clearly that they're blaspheming, right? One who claims to be in the place of God to forgive sins. Does this sound like a system we want to be in? The system that leads away from God instead of to God. Now, notice what happens here. There's a the question in the, the Council of Trent that comes up, and we looked at the Council of Trent a little bit last night with the understanding of where does the rapture theory come from, and we realize that the rapture theory came from the two people in the Council of Trent, and their names are slipping my mind really quick, but it'll come back in a second. Um, Alcazar is the first man who came up with the idea of preterism. And then you have um, Ribeiro who came up with the idea of futurism. I can't remember their first names, but we'll get it to you afterwards. And the Council of Trent, they were doing everything they could to get the eyes off of themselves because all the world is starting to say, the Catholic Church is the Antichrist, so they hire these two people and say, why don't you write some big books? Because when you write a big book, people believe what you say, right? And why don't you tell them that the rapture already took place and the Antichrist already took place in the first hundred years of the, of the first century of A.D., eighty one hundred? And why don't you write a book that says everything took place afterwards in the millennium. In other words, we can't be the Antichrist because no fingers can be pointed at us. So they confuse that doctrine. But also in that council, there's a very interesting thing that happens, and, and it looks at this, at the uh, Canon and Tradition, page 263. Finally, at the last opening of the 18th of January, 1562, all hesitation was set aside. The Archbishop of Reggio made a speech in which he openly declared that tradition stood above what? Scripture. Now I want to ask you a question. Tradition's important, right? We have family traditions. We have things that are important to us. We might even have church traditions. But if your tradition conflicts with the Bible, who should we follow? Are we supposed to be following the Bible or a teaching of a church? No, whenever the teaching of a church conflicts with the Bible, we follow the Bible. We follow whatever Jesus says. Because we're not here to be man-pleasers, but we're here to follow God. But what they're saying is in this council, they finally set it aside and they said, we figured it out. We hold tradition to be above the Bible. In other words, what our, what our popes say and what the fathers say, that's more important than what the Bible says. They continue on. Notice, like two sacred rivers flowing from paradise, the Bible and divine tradition contain the Word of God. That's interesting. Through these two divine streams are of equal, uh, though these two divine streams are of equal sacredness, still of the two, tradition is to us more clear and safe. In other words, you know, God can communicate to us through the Bible, but he also does it through tradition. But to us, really, tradition is the safer one to follow, you know, not really the Bible. Now it also says in this idea of blasphemy, Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 says that the Antichrist power would would intend to change times and laws. Now this was in the section of blaspheming against God, right? He's not just talking about changing political laws, but he's talking about changing God's law. And notice, notice this quote here. It says that the Pope is of, such great, of so great authority and power that he can modify even what? Divine laws. Now, I want to ask you a question. Can anyone change God's law? Who is it that hated God's law from the beginning? Satan, right? We saw that in the night number three, that there was a war in heaven, and it was, Satan was saying that God's law was unfair and that it had nothing to do with it and we didn't need to follow it. But it's in the Pope coming as Antichrist with the same idea that we don't need to follow the laws of God, but we can follow the laws of man. And so they took the law of God. Now, we know that the law of God is the very foundation of his government, right? That God gives us those things, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, for our own good, right? How many of you are thankful that God tells you that your neighbor's not supposed to kill you? Anyone unhappy about that? If you are, well, I, I don't know where you should go. But you realize that this is something that God has given us to protect us. But here we have that Satan through the power of the Antichrist, is now trying to change God's law. I want to ask you a question. Even if they were to write on paper that God's law was changed, is it changed? Can anyone change God's law? No. Jesus even himself says that he wouldn't do it. He says, till heaven and earth, not one pass away, not one jot or one tittle will, and by no means pass from the law, right? Matthew chapter 5 verse 17. So you realize that this is something that they can't do, but notice what they did. When we look at the Ten Commandment Law of God, we know that there's how many commandments? Ten, right? The first four dealing with our relationship to God, the last six dealing with our relationship with each other. Now, the Catholic Church believed they adopted the idea of bowing down to pagan images, right? We've talked about this multiple nights, and the second commandment says that you shall shall not bow down to any what? Graven images. Well, they thought, well, we don't really like that. In order to fit our ideas, we're gonna X that one out, okay? So then how do you still have 10 commandments if you're a Roman Catholic? Well, they took the 10th commandment and they divided it into two parts. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. In other words, those are two different commandments so that they could still have 10. Now it's very interesting that they attempted to change God's law and to make it look as though God had changed, and by taking out the second commandment, now we see that the Sabbath commandment was number three instead of number four, and that they had divided and and just kind of messed up God's law. Is it true that the Antichrist power or that the Catholic Church did this? Very true. Now notice from their own words, from the Catholic Catechism of Catholic Doctrine, Converts Catechism of Catholic Doctrine, someone asked the question about God's law, and notice what they say. They say, which day is the Sabbath? Okay, this is a fair question. They're asking the Catholic Church, which day is the Sabbath? And the Catholic Church answers, Saturday is the Sabbath day. Now that's what we found all throughout Scripture, right? Genesis chapter 2, God gave us the Sabbath, at creation as a blessing to us. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, God reminds us of the blessing that he's given to us. All throughout the prophets, God's telling us, hey, I've given you the Sabbath as a day of rest. Jesus, what day did he keep? Luke chapter 4, verse 16, he kept the seventh day Sabbath of Saturday. Jesus continued to encourage his disciples to do that. Jesus' disciples followed it all throughout the book of Acts. You see that they were keeping the Sabbath. Isaiah chapter 66 says that we'll keep the Sabbath in heaven, the seventh day of the week, Saturday. And so what is it that is wrong with this answer? It seems to be that they're right on. Well, notice how it continues on. Well, why do we observe Sunday instead of Sabbath? Has anyone ever wondered that question? If the Bible Sabbath is Saturday, why do we go to church on Sunday? Notice what the Catholic Church says. Because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. You want want a clear understanding? Well, to us, the Bible isn't as significant as tradition. And so in our tradition, we transfer the sacred holy day from Saturday to Sunday. Well, that's interesting. Notice what the Catholic Encyclopedia says that it says the church, after changing the day of rest from the Jewish Sabbath of the seventh day of the week to the first, made the third commandment refer to Sunday as the day to be kept as the Lord's day. It's interesting that it's not God that changed his law, it's the Antichrist that changed his law, and notice what this one says. It says that fundamental, fundamentalists meet... Uh, sorry, meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sunday. Now this is the Catholic Church speaking who worships on what day of the week? Sunday. It says the Jewish Sabbath, or the day of rest, was of course Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the what? Resurrection. You see, God didn't change his law. It's not that he changed it, but it's that the Antichrist power came to change what God had already put in place. Can you change God's law? No. Can you change the day of worship? No. Nope. The seventh day is still God's Sabbath, Saturday. That's why we're here today opening the Bible together, because God has given us a special day to spend with him. Now, the next question is, did the papacy persecute those who disagreed with its teachings? I want to ask you a question. Has anyone read any of the history from the Middle Ages or what used to be referred to as the Dark Ages? Has anyone read any history there? And you realize that the Catholic Church was a persecuting power, and notice what they say. The Church may, by divine right, confiscate the property of heretics and imprison their persons and condemn them to the what? So they're saying that it's okay to persecute a heretic. Now we might say, sure, a heretic, but what's a heretic? How does the papacy define what a heretic is? Notice what they say in the New Catholic Dictionary. It says heresy is deciding for oneself what one shall believe and practice. Now how many of you would be classified as a heretic? I think we all would, right? We realize that if you take the Bible as it reads and you decide by freedom of conscience what God is telling you to do, you have now become a heretic if it's out of line with the church. And they said that it's okay for them to take the heretics and to persecute them and to, to, to make their lives miserable, right? Even give them to the flames, which we've seen many examples of. Notice this one. The church has persecuted. Only a Tyro, which I had to look up, and it means a beginner, in church history will deny that. In other words, they're open about it. We've persecuted. It's very clear that we have, and it's because the Catholic Church believed that they needed to persecute the heretics. Now, there are many estimates on how many people died. There's estimates all the way up to 110 million. There's estimates at 50 million, which seems to be on the conservative side. And over this period of the reign of the power of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, millions of people lost their lives because they said, what the Bible says is more important than, to me than what the Church teaches. Now the question is, did the Catholic Church reign for this 1260-year period? That's what the Antichrist said that it would do, the little horn power. Notice what happens. When did we see that the Catholic Church came to power? 538, right? Yes, Steve got it. 538 is when the Catholic Church comes to power. Then if you have 538 and you add 1260 years to it, what would be the end date when, according to prophecy, the church should fall or to receive the deadly wound? Now, we know that deadly wound would be healed. In other words, it doesn't mean they're abolished, but their wound that uh, combined, their political and religious power would be broken, which will be reinstated later, we find out in Revelation chapter 13. But when would that be? It would be 1798. Now, I want to ask you a question. Is this what happened in 1798? Well, it's very clear cool look in modern history, and in the, the Catholic Truth Society in London, this is what they record. Berthier entered Rome on the 10th of February of what, of what year? 1798, and proclaimed a republic. You see Berthier walked in there, and the pope is reigning as both the political ruler and the religious ruler, and he says, hey, you want to reign somewhere? Why don't you go to prison? And Berthier takes the pope to prison, and the pope dies there. Now this is what Revelation chapter 13 verse 3 is talking about when it says that there would be a deadly wound. Say, why is it deadly? Well, this is a different beast. It has a political religious power. And now the political power was removed from this beast, and so it's not able to exercise in all of the power and the authority that it has. And notice as you read the language of Revelation chapter 13 that it's going to be reinstated, that there's going to come a time where church and state will unite again, and the deadly wound will be healed but we see in 1798 that this wound is applied and that the Catholic Church is no longer in power, but it's very clear that the Little Horn reigned for 1,260 years. You see that straight from history. Now, has the papacy been a strong political power? I want to ask you the question, do you think the papacy is a strong political power? Well, it's very interesting that the papacy has many things that my church doesn't. The papacy gets an ambassador from the United States who goes to the Vatican. Does that make sense? In other words, does any of your church have an ambassador from the United States coming to you every week? No. Why? Why would you have an ambassador? Well, because you're seen as a political power. Now, we see that many things have happened that we could mark to, but I want to show you just a few pictures to show you the political power that the Pope has. Who is that in the middle? I'm sorry, I wasn't alive when he was here. I, I, I need some help. No, I, I don't know. It was, it was Bill Clinton, right? And we see that the president is there with the pope. How many of you, your pastor, is going to hang out with the pope, or get to hang out with the president? Not very often, right? Now, we see even more recently that George Bush spent time with the pope. Why are they doing this? Because he's not only a religious leader, but he's a political leader. Very recently, I, was, I had the opportunity of going to Philadelphia when the pope came, And it's very interesting, all the vibe that was there. Everyone was coming to see this Pope because he was the religious and political leader. And there was something, a screenshot that I took off my phone. And this is from Huffington Post. And notice what it says. Pope Francis wants to be president of the what? World. Now they go on to say, and obviously this position doesn't exist, but Francis wants to lead the political conversation in the world. Do you see that happening today? You see the climate change in France, you know, he's leading out in that discussion. He's leading out helping Cuba. They become back in better relationships with the United States. He's a political leader. Now the question is, is he also a universal religious power? I don't know of a country where you can go to where you don't meet the Catholic organizations, right? The word Catholic means, what does it mean? Universal or worldwide. In other words, there's this power that they're a religious organization that is for all of the world. And it's an organization that's not only political, but it's also a very religious power. Now, Revelation chapter 13, verse 3, we reference this, and it talks about, and I saw one of his heads as it had been mortally wounded. Now, in order for the Catholic Church to receive the mortal wound, it had to have the power of its religious and political authority broken. But notice what it continues on to say, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled after the beast. Now there's something really interesting that happened in 1929. This is just a a clip of the San Francisco Chronicles, of one of the articles that they wrote. And there's something that Mussolini did that reinstated the position and power of the Catholic Church. Now notice what it says. The Roman question tonight was a thing of the past, and the Vatican was at peace with Italy. And affixing the autographs to the memorable document, healing the what? Wound. Do you think they understood what they were doing? Absolutely. Extreme cordiality was displayed on both sides. Now, why would a secular newspaper writer say the wound was being healed? Well, because they understand that in order for the papacy to really be able to function as it really is, there has to be political and religious power, and this was restored in a small way, or started being restored, in 1929. And now we see that it's just continuing on the way, that time and time again, that we see it's rising up, and it's rampant, and what is taking place. Now the Bible told us that these things would happen, but the question that it comes to us today, you know, some of us might say, what does this really matter to me? I want to ask you a question. What is the foundation of your faith? What is the foundation of my faith? Is it what man says, or is it what God says? Because we see that the Antichrist power, at its very foundation, is pushing and doing away with what God says and just in stating what man says. Now the next question is, what's more important to you? What's the basis of your authority in spiritual matters? Is it the church? Or is it God's will? You know, many of us have the hard time when we come into contact with the truth of God's word, saying, Lord, I want to follow you all the way, right? But my church says such and such. The question is, are we following our church or are we following Jesus? We just want to be like those in Revelation chapter 14 that follow Jesus wherever he goes, right? It's, it's about following God and what he reveals in his word. And if it's important to Jesus, should it be important to us as well? The question that we have to face today is are we following the church or are we following God's will? Who's the master of our life? Is it a religious leader? You might say, well, I'm not a Catholic. I don't have the Pope that I look up to. But I want to ask, is it, is it, does the pastor make the decisions in your life? I sure hope that the people who I pastor, that I don't make their decisions. I sure hope that the Bible makes our decisions. If any time I'm conflicting with the Bible, I hope that you would correct me, right? So we can all be right. We're not here to lead people away from what the Bible says. But if your pastor, if a religious teacher is teaching you things that are against the Bible, who are we following, God or our pastors? You see, we have choices that are ahead. And the question is, what do we want to follow? What is the Lord calling us to do today? Joshua, in talking about the choices that we all have to make, Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Notice what he says. Joshua's asked the question of who he's going to serve. And notice what he says, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will do what? We will serve the Lord. How many of you want to say that this morning? Lord, I don't want to follow just the church. I don't want to follow what, I don't care if it's what I've always been raised in, I don't care if it's what I've always known to be true, but if it's against the Bible, I don't want to continue in. Because the path of the just grows brighter and brighter. God continues to reveal truth to us, and we have to walk in it. And we say, Lord, I don't want to just follow what I think is right, but I want to follow what Jesus says. And as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Is that your desire this morning? I would invite you to pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we've seen this heavy topic and we realize that we're thankful that you, you make your word so clear. That Father, we could be confused and we could easily be pulled aside by following the traditions of men instead of the things of God. Lord, we know that you love all people. That you love everyone, even those who are involved and caught up in things that they shouldn't be. And Father, the question comes to us today, who are we going to serve? Father, there's many of us who are coming in contact with things that are new to us, and the question is, are we going to follow the things that the Bible says? Are we going to follow what we've always been taught? Lord, I pray that we would always hold your word to be more important than what we think. And that, Lord, we would follow you wherever you go. We thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.